Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. Mike Lewis, Doug Battle, Emory Marketing Analytics Center, www.fandomanalytics.com. Okay, Doug, it's kind of a... I mean, we got the NBA playoffs going on, but it's kind of a week of week of a bunch of little stories. I think um, I'll be honest with you: the one that kind of that we talked about offline in terms of texting that resonated with me was the story of was it a Miami basketball player that decided they were upset about the scope of their NIL deal, and was the the agent made a public statement that they were going to look elsewhere unless the and and you got to remember NIL is not strictly being paid by Miami or by a university that they were going to look elsewhere unless the university I guess arranged funding for the NIL I mean it gets very complicated right that unless the the home uni- the host university what do we even call these the employer the place where the student athlete is currently attending that unless they arranged more NIL dollars that they would be entering the transfer portal. And and all I could end up thinking about this, Doug, was that, you know, we talked a lot about NIL and speculated how it was going to change incentives and maybe you'd see the rich get richer. I'll be honest with you. I, I did not, I did not foresee the level of havoc. And again, maybe that was necessary that you had to explicitly connect NIL and the transfer portal. But the level of havoc that has been introduced into the system by those two things. Yeah, Mike, if you listen back to when Drew Butler, who's with Icon Source and NIL firm, joined the podcast, I asked him a question about what's to keep this from becoming a de facto pay for play system? What's to keep players picking a school based on the endorsements the school promises to get them or that their agent or whatnot? And he didn't have an answer, and to me, that was just eye-opening to the fact that okay, there's really no, there's no system in place to keep this from going absolute bonkers, and that's what we've seen. This Miami star, I think I read that he's he's deciding to stick around, but his, I don't know if it's technically an agent, but his de facto agent is going to well, help him get more contracts or more nil deals. I found my the, notes, so. It was Miami guide Isaiah Wong, and and the article says his NCAA-approved agent went on record to make a threat that if Isaiah and his family don't feel that the NIL number meets their expectations, they will be entering the transfer portal tomorrow while maintaining eligibility in the NBA draft. And that was a statement made to uh, Adam Pappas of ESPN. Yeah, yeah, so... It's uh, it's crazy in college sports, and it doesn't look like, it doesn't seem like there's been any movement toward regulating, <laughs> which as fans were usually like anti-regulation and anti-NCAA involvement. But I think it's just it's it's getting to a point where they might as well be paying players. And honestly, I think that day's coming. We'll see what happens. But as far as parity in college sports, obviously the bigger players, the schools that have more money, the schools that have more pool are, are going to continue to get richer. The rich will be richer. Yeah. I mean, I think we got to go back to when we first started 
I mean, we've been talking about this since Ed O'Bannon and the and the lawsuit, but we've been talking. This has almost been like the Fanalytics NIL podcast for well, the last two years. But you know, you go back to you know when the, the the NCAA. I think it was January of last year, January 2021. The NCAA had some proposals, and they were going to vote on these proposals in their you know their their winter meeting, and they pulled back and said, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna vote on this, and essentially they punted at that point and said. We're going to hope that the Congress takes care of it. So I, I could be wrong, Doug, but I don't think there is, in a way, there are no regulations surrounding this at this point. And there may not even be a structure for imposing regulations on it. It's like the NCAA has kind of given up control because I actually suspect that if a school said, you know what, we're going to pay our players, I don't know what the NCAA could do about it given everything that's happened over the last 18 months. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine they would try to punish them with less scholarships or less, you know, whatever they do, postseason bans. Do you think, but in all honesty, Doug, do you think that's even enforceable at this point? Do you think they would start to go down that path? I wouldn't be surprised if they NCAA sort of covered their eyes and said, well, we're not, we got to see how this evolves before we decide what the new (laughs) rules are. That certainly seems to be how it's unfolding uh, at schools. Like, I know Texas A&M's been accused of playing by a different set of rules than other schools, even in the SEC, which already are probably playing on a very lenient set of rules. And they all of a sudden had the number one recruiting class in football this year. There's been a lot of controversy over at Texas A&M. And I think schools like Alabama, Georgia, some of the, the, the teams that are typically recruiting in the top five, no matter what, are probably playing it a little bit safer uh, because they don't want to find out two years down the road that they're getting championships vacated or whatnot. They feel like we can still compete with the system we have in place with our little get cars for players through dealerships. I don't really know how they do that, but they've been doing it for forever at those schools. And you'll see it if you go on either campus, Tuscaloosa or Athens. But schools like Texas A&M that are trying to break through and, and states like Texas that want to have competitive it's good for the state to have great football it put, i mean it puts them on the map not that texas isn't on the map but you can see with the legislation that that there's incentive for these states to be the most competitive and so there's a bit of an arms race it looks like with you know which state because the a lot of the legislation is on the state level not on the national level uh, which state will enable their universities to best attract superstar athletes which brings in money to the universities and ultimately brings in in business for the states and again let's let's kind of be clear about this because this is a i think the strangeness in all this is the universities are not providing incentives to the players directly at least the universities are in some ways maybe acting as middlemen which they're not supposed to but we know they are and i mean look part of me wonders how much I bet you there's sort of two things going on in NIL. There's this kind of the above board stuff. You know, when, when Drew Butler was on, he's talking about where maybe a place like Emory even could arrange a partnership where the Emory basketball team is, you know, helping publicize, let's say a local business on the Emory campus, a pizza place. Right. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that seems to be happening at places like Miami is that there seems to be a booster in the shadows who is responsible for coming up with the NIL number. Exactly. That sounds exactly like pay for play. And when you're talking about Texas A&M, and I, look, there's, there's, there's only a hint of speculation in what I'm going to say. That's not a major market. 
right? That's not the Miami market in terms of marketing opportunities. And so how much of that is now just boosters, supporters of the athletic program meeting NIL numbers? Have we very quickly gone in, in 18 months, gone straight to the payola system? Yeah, I I think we probably have. I was about to say that boosters have become the most powerful entities in college athletics, although it's possible that that's been the case for quite some time. It's been, just been less uh, overt and they're paying and, and because now it's it's no secret that these guys are orchestrating deals and oftentimes it's the business of the booster. And like what I asked Drew was like, what's to keep a booster from creating a fake company and paying every player that signs with their school a salary for that company, which isn't producing, there's no value actually being produced there. And there's no rules. There's no legislation for that at this time. And so it's, it's absolutely, you know, it, there's a very easy loophole for, for a payola system that you're talking about. And it's, it's inevitable that it's going to happen. And so it'll be interesting to see if there's retroactively, you know, if they ever do have some sort of legislation, if they retroactively punish teams or, or schools or universities or boosters or players for breaking rules or not. But I mean, if you're a player, it's in your best interest to get paid. And if you're a university and there's no rules and your competitors are out there paying players indirectly, you've got to compete. So okay. it's, almost, it's almost a necessity at this point, it seems. And let's not ignore the elephant in the room. And I, I, I don't think anyone wants to go down the... I don't think anyone wants to go down the path I'm about to go down. But let's go back to um, Miami guard Isaiah Wong. I don't know anything about the guy, okay? Yeah. And so then the question becomes, what is his actual value as a spokesman or an endorser, as an influencer? And the answer might be essentially zero, right? I mean, maybe he's got a decent social media following. He's got a decent number of count. Is there actually any marketing influence there in terms of, let's say, a transfer of his brand equity, a transfer, you know, does he have a big enough platform? And I have to think the answer is basically no. And so if you're talking about people making potentially big money NIL deals that are not actually providing any marketing value back to the sponsor. Right. I mean, Isaiah Wong, I'm looking at his, uh, his Instagram right now. He's got 15,000 followers. So it's pretty solid. He's 15, got his 000? bio, 15,000, 15 K. His bio, his first thing in his bio is the email address to his NIL agent, Joel Bell, which initially I thought the agents were not allowed, but maybe it's different in Florida. But yeah, 15,000. He's got posts promoting delivery services, mostly just basketball posts, though. Very, not, a, not a whole lot of uh, promotion on there, but 15,000 followers. Technically, that constitutes him. You know, he, he could be an influencer on his own, I think. Okay. I mean, and again, the question becomes, so it's like just the reach. Is he influencing your choice of delivery service? <laughs> no. Right? You know, no, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think he's as valuable as he's being paid, or, yeah. or that's the case in most of these college athletes, which comes down to, like, I don't think they're just being paid for their value as a marketer. No. In, in, but, but technically, it's, he at least has a case. Sure. He doesn't have like 40 followers or something. Yeah, but I'm guessing that most athletes at D1, at big D1 programs have 
you know, it's uh, six figures of followers, right? I mean, it's, it, the, the fan bases are sort of a yeah. natural thing, right? There was like, look, Miami has a ton of fans. Miami's been a big brand since the days of crisscross in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I should really say Catholics versus con- convicts in the 1980s. But, you know, but it is, there. there's something inherently fake about all this as well in terms of how much folks are getting paid versus how much marketing dollars are, versus the, the impact, the ROI of these, uh, of these deals. And I, I don't see any way that it gets, I don't see any way that it gets rational, right? The incentives are all out there for the boosters to make the deals, to improve the teams, and any marketing consequences are second yeah, they're they're a, a second-order issue. Um, now, the connection to the transfer portal. <laughs> I looked around this morning, Doug. I can't find good numbers on the size of the athlete. Maybe it's out there, but I couldn't find it. The number of athletes in, in the transfer portal. It appears about 2,000 football players and over 1,600 basketball players entered the transfer portal. Uh, a total of, I think, just maybe 6,500 athletes of all types entered the transfer portal. So, you know, you, you're a Georgia fan and I'm an Illinois fan. I think Illinois lost three kids to the transfer portal and they were on, um, you yeah. know, sort of very nervous about maybe losing another one or two. But we're now at the point where I think maybe, you know, maybe the the average team, the average D1 basketball team is losing two, three, four guys every year to the transfer portal. Sound about right? Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, I look at Georgia basketball. Of course, there's been coaching turnover there, but this will be the second year in a row that the majority of the team has transferred out, which means the majority of the team is transferring in. The majority of the players that will be playing on the court next year for the University of Georgia will have been playing at different schools last year. And so, of course, that's a very extreme case. Not every school is like this. But you look at Alabama football. Last year, uh, best player on offense, Jameson Williams. Best player on defense, arguably uh, Henry Tuoto, if I'm saying it right, their middle linebacker. Both, uh, he came from Tennessee. Jameson Williams came from Ohio State. This year, Alabama goes out and gets Ricks from LSU on defense. He's likely to be their, you know, one of their stars on defense. And on the offensive side of the ball, they've, They got a running back from Georgia Tech. They got a wide receiver from Louisville. They're rebuilding with proven players, guys they know aren't busts, through the portal. And so it seems like this is just normal at this point in time. It changes college athletics so much to me. For I mean, I could do a whole podcast talking about that from a fan perspective. But the bottom line is NIL is certainly playing a part in these. You You think if you're a running back at Georgia Tech, yeah, the same kind of opportunities you do for a national championship contender at Alabama. Uh, no, financially, no. And so it, it's it's changing the game, no doubt. Did you see the there was a, a transfer from Fresno State to Miami? Do you know the transfer I'm talking about? I don't know. The Cavender twins, Haley and Hannah. Who I oh, did they transfer? They tra- <laughs> they transferred with NIL deals. Estimated to be in the seven figures. Hey man, we've we've brought this up before, but I, I did not know they were transferring. I don't know how I missed that because 
NIL, the biggest, the biggest winner by a mile of NIL is these female student athletes because they're able, they're actually legitimately able to make more money in college than they would in professional sports, whether it's the Olympics, 100. whether it's, I mean, there's, there's not a professional women's sport that pays as well as college athletics if, if you have that Instagram following, yeah. if you build that TikTok brand, um, and the Cavender twins have that. So it's kind of awesome to see. And, you know, for the NFL or like for like for Georgia football, for example, because I follow that so closely, it, it feels like NIL just feels like, yeah, like it's not a big deal. Like these guys are getting little $15,000 deals. Trayvon Walker signs the NFL, you know, goes number one overall. And he's he's signing on for 25 million plus like it's NIL is chump change for what for what those guys are used to and what they're playing toward in the future. Uh, but for female athletes, this College sports are the big leagues now. Like I, I can't imagine leaving for the WNBA early if you're a female athlete who has the potential to be earning millions in college. Well, Doug, let me say something. Let me like first time this is ever going to be said on the podcast. Do you know the show, The Gilmore Girls? <laughs> <laughs> Never thought you'd ask, Mike. I do know the show. I've watched one episode of it. You watched one episode. Why'd you watch one episode? One episode? Because the girl I was dating at the time wanted to watch one episode, and I was, I was game. I did was it, game did it give it. you a headache? No. It, okay. I, I didn't dislike it. I just I don't watch a ton of television, so I, I wasn't going to continue watching all however many seasons there are on my own. Okay, well, and, and the only reason I bring this up is The Gilmore Girls was one of the lowest rated shows on TV, but it did exceptionally well with the younger female demographic and the younger female demographic is is viewed as incredibly has always been incredibly valuable to advertisers because they like to spend on things cosmetics movies etc and so the gilmore girls that show stuck around for years and years because it while being one of the lowest rated shows on network tv it was also one of the highest rated shows amongst that core, I think, 14 to 24-year-old demographic. But one of the things that's happened with social media, right, and sort of essentially the death of cable TV, there are no 14-year-olds watching network TV at this point. I mean, that's essentially a... They're on YouTube or TikTok. Yeah. yeah. And so all those kind of marketing dollars, part of what I think makes the female athletes and the female... TikTokers so lucrative in all this is that that's where that audience went and that's an audience that advertisers have always struggled to get and so this is um you know it probably does change I, I don't know how it changes women's sports because I have to think there's a little bit of magic to combine the athletic skill with the TikTok skills and the let's say the image that is really going to sell in terms of Instagram but you're you're dead on that this is where the money is. And, and frankly, in some ways, I think you're extra dead on because to really appeal to that audience, you probably have to be about 20 years old, right? You can't be a 35-year-old Sue Bird, right? That's not what's selling. That's not what's pushing the product. It's, right. the, it's the youthful 20, 22-year-old that's going to make the, the bank. Yeah, and... <laughs> you'll laugh mike i'm logging into tiktok right now to see because hannah and Haley cavender their joint account they have four million followers so compare that to isaiah wong's fifteen thousand we were discussing earlier this is where 
I, I think for the first time in collegiate or professional sports, like for one sector, the female athletes are actually providing more value from a dollars and cents. Like there's always been a discussion, you know, why are WNBA players paid less? And, and the argument is that, well, they're not bringing in the money that the NBA guys are. I mean, it's just not happening. And it's a supply and demand issue. It's the opposite in college sports right now. Haley and Hannah Cavender are incredibly valuable right. from an NIL perspective. And when we talk about Isaiah Wong, we're looking at 15,000 followers and we're saying he's probably making more money than he's actually worth because they want him to stay at Miami. And there's probably some under, you know, I don't think Miami is paying the Cavender twins under the table to come to their school, you know, significantly more than what they're worth simply because it'll help them win women's basketball games. That's, that's just not the case. These girls are truly valuable to marketers and they're smart and they're cashing out on it. And so I think for, you know, the biggest story in NIL to me, like the biggest positive I've seen is these female athletes finally having a way to, to monetize their careers. Have they done a, did they do a TikTok of taking their talents to South beach? I haven't, you know, I haven't been on TikTok. I need to, I need to stay updated. Mike, that's something we, we need to do an entire podcast on. Probably should have been this week. Uh, but TikTok and sports, man, it's the future. And I didn't realize this until Tom Brady, I saw on, on Twitter, because I'm more of a Twitter guy. I'm not a TikTok guy. You know, it just kind of fits my demographic a little better. And uh, Tom Brady's TikToks, I had no idea the guy was the most likable guy in the NFL until TikTok. And to me, that that communicated to me that like, wow, this platform, it allows like a whole nother level than Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, whatever, for fans to get to know the personalities of these athletes. So someone like Tom Brady, who I was inclined growing up, everyone hates the Patriots. Everyone hates Tom Brady. He cheats, He you know, whatever. You see his personality and you're like, oh, this guy's like Joe Burrow, but like more fun. He's like a more fun dad version of Joe Burrow. <laughs> I love this guy. I want to get a jersey. I want to watch his games. I hope he wins another Super Bowl. It, it, I think it has a huge fandom impact, and I think it will. I think TikTok, especially with the ability to impact those younger generations, which are so hard to reach with television and traditional marketing avenues. Well, a couple of, couple of things occur as you say that. Number one, you know, I... I don't know, because I do think some people are taking this as evidence that, you know, the, the women doing better in the NIL deals, taking it as evidence that there's sort of more of a market for women's sports. I, I don't know that that's true, right? I mean, it might be the content no. on social media is just fundamentally different than the sports right. content, right? right? Yeah. Related, but different. You know, the other thing that, and you know, this has been a theme for me for a bit, is the... And Brady's kind of a counterexample to this of just the fragmentation that's out there. You know, that a, a four million person audience for the the Cavender twins, that might be as good as you're gonna get. Right? Mm -hmm. That's that's more than is that watching any network TV show that doesn't have, you know, Mark Harmon as an NCIA NCIS agent at this point. Right. So they've that that balance of power has shifted. I also don't know, and again, this is this is hey, you know what? This is not my fault. This is a hundred percent on you to know this. <laughs> Are the Cavenders talented on things like TikTok and Instagram? I mean, you say that Tom Brady's talented on that stuff, but Tom Brady's probably got a social media team that's 
Oh, for sure. Ensuring I, that he's doing great. Content. I haven't. I'll say this. I haven't kept up with the Cavender twins on TikTok or Insta. I don't follow. I probably should just for research purposes. <laughs> but um, I haven't kept up. I would imagine though, and based on just just based on the demographic and based on the the success and the following that they've grown, you have to be creative. You have to be. I mean, they know what they're doing. There's this doesn't happen by accident. There, those are two marketing minds, young marketing minds. And they know exactly how to build an audience. They know exactly everyone I know that because I do have a few friends that are like, quote unquote, TikTok famous, and they're very intentional. They're very strategic about how they post, what they post, what words they use, what types of videos they post, what kind of controversy they get caught up in, whatever it might be uh, to, to build these audience, build these followings and and become the level that Haley and Hannah Cavender or at uh, with social media and with the money they're bringing in. So it doesn't happen by accident. So I, I'd have to imagine that, that absolutely it's, it's very calculated. It's like Tom Brady might have a marketing team of adults who have studied TikTok for the last however long it's existed, but the Cavender twins, like it's native to them. They grew, this is their language. This is their native language. They know, ex they know better than anyone. And, and that's exactly why they're so valuable and, and why people are willing to sh shell out money to, to be associated with them right now. Well, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a confusing thing, but it's interesting. I mean, and that's all we can ask for at the, at this point. <laughs> that's all we can ask. For. Well, and like I said, you know, I mean, we we kind of think about where the, the conversation started about an NIL demand to Miami boosters, and we got to TikTok. I think it's an important thing to sort of wrap that up together because all these things are coming together. And it's, again, sort of, there. there's some very common themes in all this stuff. Athlete empowerment is another one. And athlete empowerment because, let's say the Cavenders are intuitive marketers and <laughs> they're intuitive marketers. And so they are, that's where the power is going to lie. The rules... I'm going back to this whole conversation. The NCAA ended up almost like running a house of cards that they couldn't sustain legal challenges to. So it all kind of collapsed. And now the power is shifting towards the people that are, I'm not even going to say better understand. I'm not going to use the word geniuses, but that are better set up. And I like your word native. They're better positioned for the world where the world is at right now. Absolutely. It'll be. A good question as to how much of this stardom is enduring, right? I mean, how many what TikTok stars, we've only got a, in some ways a couple of years of experience with this. Will these people become I mean, do they have to morph into something like a Jake Paul or a Logan Paul? Right? I do would they have to I would imagine so. I have a, a friend um from high school who was famous on Vine, famous on the platform Vine, which is now dead. So that but he Hold on. Made an, Vine was like was it like TikTok. 10 second videos? It was TikTok before yeah. TikTok. When TikTok came out, they were like, oh, somebody remade Vine and released it. Yeah. But he was famous on Vine and he was actually a group of, there were three guys They were famous. They were called Dim White Boys and they, they twerked on uh, Vine videos. They twerked. They were really famous. Girl, that girls were crazy about them. And he ended up starting a YouTube channel. He ended up going, he was a participant in the show, The Amazing Race. I think he came in second and then, but he grew a huge YouTube platform and, and also Instagram and, and other social media platforms. He's pretty big on Twitter as well. And so he had to kind of leverage that 
across platforms because the platform itself wasn't going to sustain. Uh, but that, that's like an example. And that's kind of how I could see it going with, I mean, who knows? TikTok could be around for the next hundred years. But if you're these athletes, I'd imagine you probably want to diversify a little bit because that example, I think, is a great one of how to sustain because to the best of my knowledge, he's a, an adult person making a living that he essentially earned twerking in high school on, on Vine, a platform that no longer exists. Well, and he's your age, so he's 25, 26. Right. Yep. So again, you know, I'm going to just put it out there that I, I wonder how sustainable that is. If you can transition that youthful fan base all the way to adulthood. Well, into, well I'm saying into the thirties where you're, you're right. I got to just like yeah. a little update is, uh, I think it's smart and I don't know how much of this is, is strategic and this isn't someone I've kept up with, but I, I hear about, uh, the person and their primary influence completely changed it started off as the kind of hot teenage guy to to a girl audience i'm not saying that's what i thought <laughs> just to be clear but um but that was the perception and when he got ma- he got married pretty young has babies and now it's like the perfect little christian family and they have all these people that follow that say i want a family like that i want a man like that that treats me like that that raises kids like that that and so it's it's a totally different sphere of influence okay. uh, but it's the same the audience that he grew up with is now also at an age where they want to get married where they want to have families where they want to you know and so but think about how tricky that is from a celebrity perspective of repositioning your brand over time i mean so it's 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 great that he does it but what's you know do you have to reposition and sort of reinvent yourself every few years i don't know yeah. i don't know and the I mean, I think in any entertainment industry, it's just hard to last. Everybody has their 15 minutes of fame. You look, you look at music, there's very few acts that stick around. Um, a film, there's very few franchises that endure the test of time. And it takes repositioning. It takes, I mean, I think even in, in sports. Like, Doug, this is why you need to become a country music star. <laughs> <laughs> no repositioning. <there. laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Beyond all this, uh, other stuff going on. It, look, in, in some ways, I don't know that we have dramatic sports stories. We've got the NBA playoffs. We had the NFL draft, the NHL playoffs. Uh, I'll give you some. I'll give you some data, some <sighs> ratings data, and and like again, I don't know that there's a coherent story here, but some of this stuff is at least superficially interesting to me. Hockey ratings are up 24% from two seasons ago, so up 18%. Uh, The NHL's best figure since 1617. So hockey ratings fully recovered from the COVID shutdown. Now they've got this, you know, I think they've got some different TV deals in place, but hockey doing well in terms of TV viewership. And, and that's a sport that you and I never, almost never discuss. Never talk about. We never talk about, but I will say this, just kind of boots on the ground observation from a, a Gen Z slash millennial, whatever I categorize as. Of course, in the big, you know, Chicago and, and Pittsburgh and Boston and all these places, there's huge fandoms. But I, I don't know that I know a lot of people that are part of those fandoms. But I will say from just a casual sports point of view, Attending a hockey game is kind of viewed as elite, like that as yeah. far as sports experiences go. 
because everybody's been to a college football game, everybody's been to an NFL game, NBA, et cetera. Everybody that I know that goes to an NHL or has gone is very proud of that fact, and they love talking about it, and they'll tell you it's probably their favorite sports experience they've had in person at a game. And so that sport is one to keep an eye on as far as when we look at fandoms. And, and I don't know that we talk about the NHL fandom much, but it's got to be on the rise with this perception amongst my generation. Okay, let me give you another number. So the TNT, T- TV games this season, 51 telecast, averaged 361,000 viewers. Okay, so it's... In some ways, it's microscopic, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that's less than a Cavender Twin Instagram post. It's far less, isn't it? Well, their their Instagrams like they both have about four hundred thousand. Oh, okay. I just saw All right, far less than a TikTok, absolutely. And and again, I think there's part of the you know because everything you're saying, I think is dead on. Hockey fans are incredibly passionate. I think it's also kind of viewed as like this kind of cool niche sport. So let me say this. So growing up in the upper Midwest in Chicago, a lot of hardcore, hardcore Blackhawk fans. Yep. People whose number one sport is hockey. And I suspect that's true in Boston, New York, any place where there's, Doug, any place where there's ice on the ground for three, four months a year. Mm-hmm. I also think that you're right that hockey tends to be something that's a little bit niche and people do kind of, it's almost got a little bit of a coolness factor. So right. it's kind of strange where it's not particularly accessible in terms of the number of people taking part, but it's got some cachet. But 361,000, I think, tells me, again, you know, like, if I'm connecting the dots on some of the stuff that's been going on post-COVID, I'm always going to come back to that word fragmentation. So 350,000 really intense fans, it's small, but maybe that's just the world we're, we're living in. And again, kind of highlights why the Cavenders are so valuable. Yeah, and I would say with hockey, I would imagine, much like baseball, and I, I would love, I don't know how you would measure this, Mike, I would love to see some some sort of study in, into this, but I would imagine that fandom enthusiasm for attending a game is relatively way higher than watching on television yes. compared to football. People with football... Yes. They're kind of indifferent between going to the game or watching on TV. It's like, eh, it's hot outside, but like I could watch at home and flip to the other games. And it's, you know, like maybe I'd rather go, but not by that much. But with baseball, I've learned that people won't even watch on TV, but it's like the highlight of their summer to go to a game. And I would imagine hockey is much the same way. I don't know anyone that watches on television, but everyone I know that goes to a game posts about it constantly, talks about it constantly is a huge fan of the game experience, the in-game experience, which is one area where there may be an advantage because we look at some sports where marketers are trying to say, okay, how are we going to keep people in seats when the television experience is so comfortable and and you know so preferable at a lot of times to a lot of people? I don't think, think that is a huge concern for NHL or probably even MLB right now, although half the time I watch MLB games, it's half-empty stadiums. <laughs> Well, there's so many, so many games in MLB, right? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'll I'll speculate, and I've got no evidence to back this up, that the percentage of fans wearing jerseys of the home team is the highest in the NHL compared to other leagues. 
mm-hmm. that when you're going to an NHL game and, and like maybe it's a, people love to wear hockey jerseys, you know, the highest percentage of fans that are dressing like the home team. Uh, okay, so NBA playoffs. Uh, first round of the NBA playoffs averaged 3.49 million viewers across ABC, ESPN, and TNT, the highest first round average on the network since 2018. Yeah. So basketball is back and above. Basketball's back. Pre COVID, uh, you know, COVID induced levels, it's recovered. Yeah. And a, a story that isn't being talked about as much, but that is quite interesting to me is the fact that. It's doing this without LeBron in without the, mix the Lakers. Because, yeah. Yeah. In the past, when LeBron or the Lakers have not been involved in the playoffs, the moment they're eliminated, it seems as though general interest declines because people either love LeBron or they hate LeBron, but both are equally likely to tune in to watch LeBron because they want to either pull for him to become Jordan or they want to pull for him to fail miserably. And, and, you know, have a terrible game six of the NBA finals. And so the league has been so LeBron based for 15 years, it seems. And the fact that it seems to be flourishing without him in the picture has got to be encouraging for the NBA right now because they've got this crop of young players. And it seems as though they're still able to generate that interest without a LeBron James type figure, without their Michael Jordan of this generation presently playing. Of course, players like Giannis and and there's a number of players that could be in that conversation at some point but this is the first time I've seen the NBA seem to flourish mm-hmm. and, and as far as viewership with LeBron not in the picture well let me give you one let me throw one wrench into that maybe it's a minor wrench the Celtics net net series was by far the highest rated series in the first round though yeah and the Nets are the closest thing you have to a marquee team not from Los Angeles. Well, maybe maybe Golden State. Yeah. So, I, I mean, there, I think there's always going to be a level of you need some, some big market players involved and some big star players like Kevin Durant involved. But I guess, in my opinion, it seems as though public sentiment has, has changed. Not that people are now all dislike LeBron, but that it's fatiguing to watch the same guy in the finals every year. And it's, and it's, I actually think there's a sense of excitement that, wow, somebody new is going to get to have their moment now. Well, what was it? I want to tune in and see who it's going to yeah. be. I mean, what was it? Did LeBron have something like, you know, 10 finals appearances? Straight. I mean, I don't know if it's straight, but it's. I think so. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, it does seem, not. It, I agree. It does seem healthier in a way. I'm surprised the ratings aren't down a little bit without the right. casual fan. But it also, look, again, coming back to this word fragmentation or segment-based marketing, maybe the casual fans really don't exist in the NBA. And so maybe, you know, because we're talking about a number of three and a half million people. So we're talking about, you know, think about what that number is. That's right. the number of people that don't live in the Chicago metro area. That's the number of people that live in the city of Chicago. Right. Right. And so if that is kind of that core audience, then maybe, you know, for that core audience, maybe the casuals aren't coming in, that this is actually a better product for the NBA. I could definitely imagine that scenario because it's more in. Look, John Morant coming of age, that's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. It is. It is. Absolutely. And I just, I guess I didn't expect improvement 
with with this situation with the potential for a Phoenix versus Milwaukee NBA Finals for the second year in a row or Memphis versus Miami or whatever <laughs> looking at the the different matchups that are on the table it seems as though yesterday's NBA this would be a dud but like you said it's a very segmented segment based market now and Phoenix their fans are fired up. Memphis, their fans are fired up. You know, Miami, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Boston. Uh, of course, Boston's a bigger market than the rest of those or many of those, but it's it's changing and it, it's probably a microcosm of, of sports as a whole. Okay, now, Doug, and part of the reason why my last piece of TV ratings data and part of the reason why I'm stressing this word fragmentation is, okay, so we got the playoffs going on. We've got... You know, the NHL season with their big new TV deal. Okay, you want to guess how many people watched the NFL draft the first night? At least my whole family. <laughs> okay. so I, the, I really can't put a number on that. The number I have is 10.03 million. Beautiful. So the NFL I, draft defeats all the NBA playoff games. It defeats, and the, be- the beautiful thing is it beats the NFL the Oscars. draft. It's right. a fake event. It's not, nothing's, like I was watching, I tuned in, and before they were showing, you know, there was a helicopter flying over like there was about to be a football game, and there were all these thousands of people standing up for hours and hours just to watch every 15 minutes, somebody would walk up and shake hands with another person, and then they'd wait another 15 minutes. There's no action. There's no excitement. All the highlights have been accessible for the last several months. And yet we all tune in for it because the NFL is masterful at creating stories, at masterful at engaging audiences, masterful at making you feel like you don't want to miss out on this because this is going to be, we're going to be referring back to this for years and years to see, you know, which player dropped or which player, which big trade happened and how that changed the course of NFL history. The NFL is masterful at that. No, the, the NFL draft is forgotten. In some ways, the draft is forgotten the moment after it's over. Right, but they sell you that it's they sell you on its importance. That's why there's 10.03 million people tuning in. Oh, and it, it, look, it, it it it's an the NFL is about events. This is an event. It's the event of hope, right? Yeah. And the coverage of it is intense and the day after everyone has to go out there and grade the drafts and the other thing that I thought was and I don't know how long they've been doing this and I I did a little bit of research into it, and the thing that caught my eye, clothing-wise, was not not the kid from Ohio State with the pearls and whatever right. that was. Yep. It was the Jordan Davis with the red stripe going along the the suit jacket. Yeah, part of me was wondering if that was like an Old Spice because he's he's been a pretty big marketing presence well, uh, recently, but. The story I heard, and I'm not sure that this is completely accurate, is that the NFL, basically, the people that come to Vegas, the people that are invited to Vegas, the NFL sets them up with clothing allowances and tailors and helps them create the outfits. So going back to this point about this is an event, it's a show, it's not even real, there's even costumes involved in all this from the NFL. I mean, the, the Met Gala was last night, but it's got that, it's got that Met Gala vibe where half of the people on on twitter are talking about nicobe dean's hat and how he's wearing a pink suit and garrett wilson's pearls and et cetera et cetera 
Yeah, but this is why the NFL is smarter than the people at the Met Gala, right? Where the mayor <laughs> of New York is taking taking a hit for his stop gun crime suit, right? <laughs> is that the NFL probably, look, they probably looked at it over the years and they said, you know, some of these guys are dressing crazy. Why don't we fund the craziness and have some control over it, right? Talk to these guys about the brands that they're developing. And so the NFL, Doug, the NFL always this is the sports adage from our show, Fanalytics. The NFL always wins. The NFL always wins. Mike, let me ask you this question. Long-term, NFL, do you think with CTE research and rising concerns in regards to safety, player safety, uh, and the well-being of, of football players, do you think the NFL can sustain potential rule changes, potential groundbreaking research that could be damaging to the league's perception as well as hopes of continuing to, to keep the game as it's been. Well, Doug, let me tell you this. <laughs> I, I want to go, I'm going back. You know, I've been talking about this for so long and there was a, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but the CTE stuff, I think really kind of hit the head. There was, I think there was a movie and there was a book called Concussion. Mm -hmm. And I want to say this was about six, seven years ago. Maybe it's yeah, five, six years Will, ago. Will Smith. Right. And at the same time, in the same time frame, there was the, what was the elevator um, assault was, who was that? Athlete? Ray Rice. Ray Rice. Ray Rice. And so at that moment, there was domestic violence hitting the NFL. There was CTE. Since then, we've had players, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. So the NFL takes the national anthem away. It is the one unifying part of American culture. And so will that change? You know, perhaps. But fantasy football, Sunday mm -hmm. afternoon, um, sort of event viewing, the mm -hmm. spectacle of the Super Bowl. My prediction, if you're asking me for a cold, you're, you're asking me for a cold prediction the NFL is the unifying theme in American culture and the rest of the sports world moves to being segment level or niche level games. So I would never, at this point I've been looking at this too long and sort of been wrong in some speculation that no, I think the NFL is America's it, it's America's sport. Of course, mm -hmm. baseball was and that changed, but, but you don't, you don't see a change like there was with MLB. no, I mean, at least, you know, probably all bets are off more than all bets are off long term. I mean, you know, right. the other thing, the other thing that people don't like to talk about is there's been so much demographic change in this country. And right. as the population change, I, changes, I don't know that you get to think that the cultural institutions that matter are going to matter, matter now or mattered in the past are going to matter in the future. Mm -hmm. But the NFL is. You know, the NFL dominates the sports calendar. It has the biggest TV event of the year. And I can't even underestimate fantasy football is something I don't play. But I think fantasy football is incredibly important. It might be one of the core. <laughs> fantasy football may have reached the point where it's one of the most common family activities <laughs> where the entire family gets together. I mean, I, it's shocking what I'm about to say, right? But. Fantasy football might be the most popular family activity where you've got everyone from, let's say, Aunt Gertrude all the way right. down to your, your high school and, cousins in the same league. Yeah, yeah, and I would, I would also add that I think 
the game Madden. Yeah, add the video is, games to it. Is the key to to building fandom. I know for me as a as a child playing that game, I knew every I knew the name of every player in the NFL. I knew every team. I knew the names of their stadiums. It was ingrained in me from a very young age that this is all very important. And I, I knew everything. And so as an adult, it's like, would I now, if I had never watched NFL, would I now be inclined to start following it or, or keeping up with it? Probably not. But it's like, I've always kind of had a little bit of investment in it. Um, and, and it's hard to walk away from that. And so I think, th- I think there's a lot of people with the, the younger generations that that's their, initial, that's their initial involvement with the NFL. And it grows. I mean, for me, that's how I started off. NFL Street was my first NFL game. I became a Giants fan because that was the team I liked playing with on NFL Street. I liked playing with Tiki Barber. I liked playing with Jeremy Shockey. And I decided, all right, I'm gonna, whoa, those are real guys. I want to watch them. Yeah. And then I watched them on Sundays. And then eventually I went to a game. And, and now it's a completely different set of players. But I've experienced the championships. I've experienced the ups and downs. I've got the jersey, the hats. And I'm a fan. Like, I can't, I can't as much as I want to be a fan of whatever city I move to or whatever, it just doesn't feel right. But the bottom line is that was ingrained in me from a very young age, starting with the video games. And again, you know, maybe the NFL just, the NFL always wins, right? They they did some deal with the de- devil because even the marketing of that video game Madden, when John Madden died fairly recently, he was mm-hmm. iconic to everyone from age 75 to, you know, 15. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else there's nothing else like that in the video game space that Madden video game is something that again that's been played by everyone who's aged like say 10 to 60. Mm-hmm. I don't know of another you know it's hard to think of products that connect across the generations like that. You know the 60 year olds probably aren't playing Madden anymore but they remember playing it in 19 mm-hmm. in 1990 and that's a point of connection to you know, literally, their grand their grandchildren are now pay, playing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's wild to think about. Yeah. Okay, Doug, you got anything else on the agenda? Just want to point out that uh, college sports, Georgia football had the the fifteen players drafted, which set an NFL record. If you actually look at it, they. I don't say this, I'm not bragging. I mean, I, it's not like it's my accomplishment, uh, but they probably could have. I mean, they had a player drafted in the first round who had transferred from Georgia because he needed more playing time because he was behind other guys that were drafted at Georgia. Um, and they had another player that went to jail that would have likely been a first-round pick had he not gotten himself into trouble. And so you're looking at a college football team with in one year – 17 NFL players plus the younger classes of which, you know, they, they have over 22 players on that roster that were going to be in the NFL. So I think college football is getting to a point where we've always said, Oh, Alabama would get crushed by the word, you know, by the Detroit lions or whoever it might be. And that, that may still be the case, but these teams are with NIL and with the transfer portal are, are stacking so much. Um, and I think Alabama this next year is going to be a lot like that, where it's not, it, it's very possible to see 20 players drafted from one team in one season, 20 NFL players from one team, whereas another team within their conference doesn't have a single player drafted. So, I mean, it, it's just a further evidence point, a further piece of evidence in, in our ongoing discussion of parity in college sports and how 
it's just dying. There's there's no way to maintain it with the current infrastructure. And I'd expect to essentially have two or three NFL teams and a bunch of other teams that they beat up on and a couple games at the end of the season that determine who the champion is before 20 players from one of those teams go to the NFL. Yeah, that that model of I'm gonna recruit I'm gonna recruit talented three stars and I'm gonna grow them up to fifth year seniors and that's how we're gonna compete. Doesn't seem even close to sustainable well, if, at this if point. If they pan out, they're transferring. They're yeah. transferring to Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State, one of these schools. I mean, I saw there's an FCS school that has a, a big pass rusher who just entered the transfer portal. And I saw that it's speculation that he might be going to Georgia. And he, you know, it's if you if you're a smaller player and you raise up, you find a diamond in the rough, your chances of keeping them with their financial opportunities at these contending schools uh, are pretty low. Pretty low. Yeah. Doug, we're, we're, we seem like 15 minutes away from someone having a, you know, a YouTube live or some other streaming event where they're putting on a hat that says transfer portal or not transfer portal. And they're doing that on, because I think May 1 is the death. Between, between, every, between every season. Yeah. I love it. I love it. But that, that's just a little college sports update. And it's something I noticed at the draft. And also the fact that the SEC for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years in a row has had the most players drafted in the, the first round. And now they're seeing, or maybe drafted overall, I forget which, which the stat was, but now they're seeing more influx of proven talented players from other conferences coming in. It's hard to imagine parity returning at any level in college sports. Agreed. Okay, we'll wrap it there. Uh, as always, guys, much more content at www.fandomanalytics.com. It's going to be a busy month in terms of the content. A couple of major NFL analyses, the first one related to NFL fan bases, will likely come out in the next week or so. And then something special that I've been working on that I'm going to you know, ask you for your input on, Doug, as well, is a new method of forecasting team performance based on a brand new quarterback metric. And then following all that, we're going to dig in deep into... Our, it's the second year of it, our annual survey of fandom across all the sports and entertainment sectors and across all the generations. It's a lot of good stuff ahead.